Christ is risen. Let's try that one more time with some conviction. I know you guys can do it. Christ is risen. Amen. Well, happy Easter, and uh, it is great to be with you as always, and we have missed you dearly uh, during this candidating process, uh, but we're thankful to worship the Lord with you of all days on Easter Sunday, and we're thankful to the Lord for all the visitors that we have with us, family and friends who have joined us, and uh, we're delighted that you're here, and we trust that God will minister to your hearts this morning. Uh, In the early years of the church, uh, it is said that believers used to greet each other with those opening words that we exchanged. Christ is risen, and the response was, he is risen indeed. And that joyful, triumphant greeting has echoed down through the centuries of the church, and it rings loudest on this particular day. Because Easter is a celebration of the reality That Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. And we're talking about the resurrection. Today marks that significant, historical, glorious event over 2,000 years ago when our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It marks the day of worship for us as believers. And it's why believers from all around the world have their services on Sunday and not Friday because he was raised on Sunday. It's become the new Sabbath, our day of rest. And so his resurrection is not just celebrated annually on Easter Sunday, but every Lord's Day that we meet, we are testifying, we are celebrating to the reality that we are worshiping a risen Lord. But once a year, we have set apart this day to celebrate in a special way. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important historical event of the Christian faith. Our faith stands and falls on whether Jesus Christ lived and died or whether he lived and died and rose again. There's a difference there. And it is our foundation. It is the cornerstone of Christianity. Everything hinges on this. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Paul says that our faith would be in vain and all of this would be false. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is risen indeed. And on the third day, God raised Christ from the dead and it vindicated him and it validated who he is and what he came to do, namely to die for sinners so that we might be spared from God's judgment. And instead be forgiven when we put our trust in him. See, we gather this morning as a redeemed people to praise the risen Lord. In a lot of ways, our meeting itself, it's testifying to the truth of what happened to our Lord in the resurrection. And yet I realize that we live today under the banner of religious tolerance. We live in an age of what's called religious pluralism, that truth and morality is relative, that there is no absolute truth, and so we should tolerate one another's beliefs. 
There's a saying that it's what is true for you may not be true for me. And that is the spirit of religious pluralism. That we have to accept one another's differences. That those who even hold or dare hold one faith over another or claim that yours is the absolute truth are considered narrow-minded or even bigoted. And they use this analogy that there is one mountain and people, they take different paths up that mountain. But the thing is, we all arrive at the same point. Now, the challenge to that thinking is this. What happens when one path says it's the right path? And then the other says that it's the right path. And the religions make these exclusive claims that oppose each other. What do you do when the Bible says that man is destined to die once and then comes judgment, and then Eastern religions teach reincarnation? Both teachings cannot be true. What do you do when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me? And then Islam says that their way is through Muhammad. Or even for today. Christianity says that Jesus rose from the dead, and yet unbelievers says he didn't. How do you reconcile the two when we're told that this may be true for you and not for me? You can't have it both ways. Because it is an all-or-nothing proposition. And this categorical statement is what we're confronted when reading the New, the New Testament. That Jesus rose from the grave. This doctrine of the resurrection demands a response. It causes us to take sides. That we either have to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead or he has not. This event is true or it is not. Jesus is Lord and Savior or he is not. But both can't be true. There is no room for this is true for you and not for me. Do you understand what's going on here? Christianity is either right or wrong. And it all hinges on the resurrection. The Apostle Paul understood what was at stake. And he devotes an entire chapter here in 1 Corinthians 15 on what he calls a first importance. And Paul, he establishes the historicity of the resurrection. He's telling us that our faith isn't a blind faith, but it's factual. And what he does in this section of 1 Corinthians 15 is he appeals to eyewitnesses who saw the risen Lord. And this is what he says in verse 4. That he, being Jesus, was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Least of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Sometimes people tend to believe that this is some mythological book. But we realize, in fact, this is a historical document. Paul is recording that there were a lot of people 
who saw, encountered, and interacted with Jesus after his death. Our Lord appeared to real people at a real time, at a real place. And note this, Paul specifically states that these eyewitnesses to the Lord's resurrection, verse 6, he says, most of whom are still alive. Why do you think he mentioned this? Because he's daring you. If you don't believe me, ask them. He appeals to them. Because Paul is writing this letter and he's making claims about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead less than a generation removed from when Christ last appeared. So that if Paul was lying and those who lived during this time read this and knew what he wrote wasn't true, they would have refuted these claims and yet no one did because they knew that it was true. The Bible gives evidence after evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The eyewitnesses, the empty tomb, the changed life of Paul, the boldness of the apostles who went to their deaths proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, the rise and the spread of Christianity. Someone once said that it wasn't the church that created the resurrection, it was the resurrection that created the church. And so Paul concludes with a finality in this statement in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Without which there is no Christianity is what he says. But a question that comes to mind for many people is, what are the implications of the resurrection? And that's important because I can tell you that the resurrection is important, that it is true, but what does it mean for me and you is really the question. So that's what we want to look at this morning. And Paul tells us, how the resurrection relates to each and every one of us. And there is significance here for how we live. And he tells us this in a few verses here in verses 20 and following. And so if you have your Bibles, and if you're not there already, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. And let me read our text for us this morning. Beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your grace upon us as we look to your word. Lord, I know that there are some here that might have unsettled hearts from the weak. Maybe they're distracted. Maybe this is just even a little overwhelming for them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be able to help us to set our heart's attention and focus on your word this morning. That we might hear from you that you might 
enlighten minds and change hearts, that you might make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, as a result. Help us, Lord, to see more of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. First, if you're taking notes, Paul explains to us that how the resurrection relates to us is that our Lord's resurrection gives us life. Jesus' resurrection gives us life. Over the years, I've come across a number of epitaphs that I've begun to file away. And I find them very interesting because the messages found on gravestones across the world tell us much about the individual and their perspective and the life that they lived. And I just want to share a few of them with you. And some of the more humorous ones that I came across that make light of death uh, one I found was on a gravestone in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, and this is what it says. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Uh, another one from a Georgia cemetery. I told you I was sick. Should have listened, okay. Uh, a short and pithy one from Texas. You can't win. That's it. Uh, those are uh, some of the lighter ones that I've come across. Um, but there are some of the more serious and, and grim and even sobering ones that I've read. Uh, one says this, Live for the present hour since we are sure of nothing else. Another says this, Here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And it's sad, and there are many more like it, uh, that these are some very sobering words that have been written on these gravestones, and it's such a contrast to one of my favorite ones written by Benjamin Franklin, who requested that they etch this on his stone. And this is what it reads, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms, but the work shall not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. I'm especially fond of that one because it looks beyond the tombstone and it focuses on the ultimate triumph that is ours in Christ. But I share these different messages on on these gravestones as a reminder of the reality of death for every one of us, in spite of how we might view it. The grave is where we must all eventually go. We're confronted, every one of us, with our mortality and reminded that life is short and uncertain and there is even fear beyond what's this. And we ask the question, is there more? What's beyond the here and now? Do I have hope that that what awaits me will be favorable to me? This was the question that Job asked in the Old Testament. He asked, if a man dies, shall he live again? And that question encapsulates 
what men and women throughout history have asked concerning the question of immortality. This is what weighs on each and every person, doesn't it? I heard a story of the little blind boy who was flying his kite. And a friend asked, how do you know your kite's up there when you can't see it? And he replied, I know because I can feel the tug of the string in my hand. Every person feels the tug of immortality. And though he cannot see it, and though he cannot define it, nor explain it, he senses it's there. Scripture tells us that in fact God has put eternity upon our hearts We know that something is not right in this world when we encounter death and suffering and injustice. And we know there has to be better. There has to be something better yet to come. And we're trying to find hope amidst all of this in life. And in our search, we end up in the only place that we were meant to. And that is to Jesus Christ. He is our hope. This Easter morning is really a proclamation of that. See, the gospel is what helps us make sense of the world around us. Paul here in this text, he gives us the reason for both why there is death in this world and also how Jesus is the solution. And he tells us through a simple reference to Adam. Look at verse 21. This is what Paul writes. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Then in verse 22, reinforcing this point, for as in Adam all die. Now what's inferred here, but is taught explicitly throughout scripture, is that death is not natural. It was not part of God's original design. God had created the world in six days, and he saw all that he had made and said that it was good. But we're told here in verse 21, by man came death, and in Adam we all die. The world was perfect, and there was no death in this world, but something disrupted that, namely sin. And Paul specifies Adam's sin. When Adam, in his free will, the first man who lived, when he sinned against God, the effects of his sin brought about death, but not only upon himself, but upon all of humanity. See, what the Bible teaches is that Adam was humanity's representative. In theology, this is called federalism, or the federal headship view. And it's called this because of the analogy of a way that an ambassador might act on behalf of his country. When he signs a document or takes an action, he does so for each of the country's citizens. And they are therefore bound by what he does. Well, Adam was appointed by God as the federal head of all mankind. In that he represented humanity and acted on our behalf so that blessing or judgment would also come upon men and women based on Adam's obedience 
or disobedience. And as we've alluded to, in the Garden of Eden, Adam disobeyed. He sinned against God. And when he sinned, not only was Adam judged, but we too were judged for his actions because he was our representative. Paul, he reiterates this in Romans chapter 5 and says this in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. He's speaking of Adam here again. And the fall, the curse, and sin would come upon humanity as a result of Adam as our representative, and we are judged as if we all sinned. That's what Paul tells us. This was our predicament. But in the plan of God, in his wisdom, and in his goodness to us, God would send his son Jesus Christ from heaven to this world as our second Adam, as humanity's new federal representative. And Paul references that Jesus is the last. He is the better Adam who brought life. Paul, throughout his letters, would contrast the failure of Adam with the victory of Christ, who is the new Adam, and state that the two different effects were brought upon humanity through their actions, namely death in Adam's disobedience and life in his obedience in his life. This is what Jesus was doing for over 30 years of his life on earth. Not only did Jesus have to die for our sins, but he also lived for our righteousness in obedience. Do you ever think about this? We know that Jesus came to die for our sin. But why didn't our Lord immediately go to the cross and die for the sins of the world? Why did he have to wait 30 plus years? Because Jesus had to come and fulfill the role of the second Adam. To be the representative of a new humanity. He had to do what Adam could not do. He had to obey where Adam disobeyed. He had to achieve victory where Adam suffered defeat. And so on one hand, Jesus had to do what Adam could not do. But he then also had to undo what Adam had done. He had to do what Adam could not do. But he also had to undo what Adam had done. So how does he accomplish this twofold purpose? This is where we can't separate Good Friday from Easter Sunday. The only way that Jesus would reverse the effects of sin was to first bear the consequence for sin in dying and then triumphing over it by being raised to life. Christ had to die and resurrect in order to undo what Adam had done. Here's the thing. We are all sinners by nature, yes, because of our relationship to Adam. But not only are we sinners by nature, 
We're also sinners by choice. Everyone here, regardless of this whole Adam thing, we have individually sinned against God. We've broken his law. Each of us, we have tried to live life apart from God. You might not think that you're a bad person, but the thing is, you're flawed. And we've all done wrong. And we sin almost every moment of every day in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our actions. The Bible tells us that because God is holy and a just God, he doesn't let us get away with breaking his law. Just as a civil judge wouldn't allow a lawbreaker to go free without justice. Do you understand? This was our situation. And God tells us that the consequence for our sin is none other than judgment and hell. It is condemnation. And we all deserve the punishment for our crimes. And you realize there's nothing we could do in this situation. We can never do enough good things to make up our bad There's no way that we can somehow earn our way to heaven because there are still consequences for your sin that you've committed. And like Adam, we have to bear this judgment or someone does. And here's the good news. This is the gospel. It's that God, he loves you and me. And so Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he comes down into the world to live the life we could not live and to die the death that we deserve to die. He came as our substitute. He went to the cross and he bore our sin and the punishment for it in our place. Jesus, he saves us by dying on the cross for us. And that's what we celebrated on Good Friday. That Jesus, he made atonement for our sin by sacrificing himself for sinners. But we know the story doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't just stay dead. He was raised to life. And on the third day, our Lord resurrected. And in so doing, what was God telling us? What did this all mean? It meant that Jesus' death was effective. That it worked, that the payment of Jesus' blood was processed. This transaction went through, and in the resurrection, God the Father was saying that he received the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And on the basis of this, Jesus was victorious then over sin and death. And because of this, he can now offer life to sinners who otherwise would have had no hope at all. And here's how all this applies to us. What Jesus says is if you come to him and you confess your sin and believe in Christ in his death and resurrection, rather than staying joined to Adam you now become joined with the better Adam, who is Christ. And as a result, instead of receiving death, you are given life in Christ on the basis of what he's done. 
the coming of Jesus and what he did, it changed everything for humanity. Let me try to give you an analogy that maybe help you better understand what this all means. You imagine a a group of mountain climbers on a dangerous high mountain slope and they're making their way up high atop the mountainside attached to each other, tethered together with their rope. When all of a sudden, the one on the bottom falls. He plunges into the abyss and his screaming begins to trail off as he's falling. It's a frightening scene for the entire group. The problem is he's connected to all the rest. Everyone knows what's going to happen. One at a time, as the first one falls off, the rope tightens and the next one is pulled off and goes down into the abyss crying out as well. And the next thing you know, the next one is pulled off. In a rapid succession, it happens one after the other of the climbers plunging into what looks like certain death until one man is left. One climber is left, and he's attached to all the rest. He knows what's coming. And so with the mighty stroke of his axe, he digs in, and he waits, bracing for it. And of course, what happens? The rope that's attached to him is attached to all the other climbers, and all of their weight and all of the pressure and velocity in that rope snaps tight around his body with an overwhelming force, but he holds on. And as he holds on, the rope simply crushes him. His ribs start popping one at a time. He is injured, but he doesn't give up. Instead, bearing all that weight, the weight of the fallenness of all the other climbers bears on him, but he begins to climb. Because he climbs, the fall of the other climbers is arrested. They're able to get their footing again, and they're saved. Do you see that just as Adam fell and pulled us all down one by one, we needed one man to be part of the human chain connected to us but not fallen, who could then bear the weight of all our fallenness, of all our inability, of all our evil and sin, for him to bear the weight of this means he will have to be crushed. And Jesus Christ was that one. He was the last man on that mountain. He stood his ground, but he was crushed for our trespasses and sin. He lived, but then he he died. And then he rose again. Just as the first Adam was our representative, so Christ is for believers the second Adam. And when we connect to Christ by faith, our fall is arrested. We get our footing and we are spared from what is certain death. And we are saved. 
And I realize this analogy falls short as it does with all illustrations. In reality, we are all connected naturally to Adam. We're born with a flawed nature and with sin, and we all have a propensity to fall. And all that is passed down from generation to generation in our sin nature. But the only way that we're actually connected to Christ is not naturally like we were with Adam, but supernaturally, spiritually, through faith in him. See, what happens is when you believe in him, then you join with Christ. You connect to him in what's called our spiritual union. The moment you believe in Christ, the spiritual rope is connected. And so your sins and your fallenness and the consequences of that bear on him. But all of his right standing, his sure footing, his righteousness is transferred to you and me. And so that essentially through faith, what's happening, if we can better accurately picture this scenario here, you move from one group led by Adam up this mountain. And by faith, you go to another group led by Christ. And he is our hope for life. Paul is telling us, That Jesus is the greater Adam who gives us life through his life, death, and resurrection. Second, we also see one last thing in this passage about how the resurrection relates to us. And it's this, that Jesus' resurrection gives us hope of future glory. Paul says in verse 20 this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here Paul gives us a glimpse of our future glory. And it says that Christ is the firstfruits. Because we don't live in an agricultural society, we're not familiar with that term. But this was a very significant word for those in this time. The first fruits would be the first fruit or the first sheaves, the first blades, the first corn, the first wheat, whatever it was. When it appeared and it was gathered, do you know why the people would rejoice? Because it meant the harvest of the rest was coming. What the first fruit signified was there was more to come. The initial crops were a sure sign of an entire harvest to follow. And people, they put their hope in that. And they longed for what was to come. Paul says, when Christ was raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of a host of so many others who will be raised as well. See, Christianity offers more than just a little inspiration a little help with your problems, a little moral guide for how you live. No, Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come. And what that means is he is the down payment, he is the guarantee, he is the hope of many resurrections to follow. 
Simply put, Jesus is the first person to be resurrected, is what Paul is saying here with this term. Now put in that way, here's the interesting thing. We know that there were other resurrections recorded in Scripture prior to Christ. Jesus himself raised the widow of Nain's son. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised Lazarus, and he comes back to life. So how then can Paul say that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection when all these other examples precede Christ? Was Paul mistaken here? And we know, obviously, the answer is no. See, even though the others were brought back to life from the dead, they subsequently died again. Our Lord's resurrection was far different. And ours will be of the same kind. What we have to understand is that when Jesus cried out that it is finished and he died on the cross, he really died. He was truly dead. This was an occasion where the body of Jesus was now a corpse. His soul left his body and went to be with the Father, but his physical body was placed in the tomb. And with Jesus' corpse, as it is with any corpse, there was no heartbeat. There were no brain waves. There were there was no blood pulsating through his veins. He was dead as can be. And in his death, in his humanity, he was utterly powerless to do anything. We see an analogy of this with Lazarus, whom Jesus raised, and we see that this work was done passively for him. I believe Pastor Henry preached on this last week, so you should be familiar with the story. But you know this, that when Lazarus was raised, he contributed nothing to it. You recall that Lazarus had been dead for four days, and when Christ came to raise him from the dead, how did he do it? He didn't go into the tomb and and give Lazarus mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Neither did he plead with Lazarus to come back to life. No, instead, our Lord called with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And at the command of the Son of God, this dead body came to life. I use this analogy because you go back to the dawn of creation. And how was the whole universe brought into being? How did life come to pass in the first place? Through the chance collision of atoms? No. The Bible tells us through the command of God's voice. The infinite God who says, let there be light. And there was light. And so the power of his word is what it took to bring life into this world. Is now the same power. It took to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And the same power of God, the Holy Spirit, who hovered over the waters in the beginning to bring forth the creation of all things, so that same Spirit now comes 
into the tomb where the corpse of Jesus is that Sunday morning. Situated and bound with grave clothes and linen. And the Spirit of God raises him from the dead. You imagine with me his body on that Sunday morning over 2,000 years ago. In a moment, the eyes begin to flutter. The brain waves begin. The heart starts to beat. And the blood starts to course through the veins of the slain body of Jesus. And in the power of the Spirit, he comes out of these grave clothes and out of a state of death and comes out alive. And the light of his glory shone in the victory over death. It's so interesting. So many people, they believe this is the unbelievable miracle of Jesus The skeptic says that if there's anything we know for sure is that when someone dies, they stay dead. So that if there's anything mythological about Christianity, it's this teaching of the resurrection because they say that such a thing is impossible. And yet the New Testament looks at it from a completely different perspective and says that it was impossible for death to hold him. Acts chapter 2, in verse 24, Peter preaches this, that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death had no claim over him because death, as we remember, is the punishment that God gives to people for sin. But Jesus was sinless. This was God in the flesh His own inherent sinlessness gives no authority to death to contain him. How could death hold a sinless human being? It can't. It is impossible, as Peter says. And so Jesus is vindicated in this act of resurrection. But Paul tells us one last thing about this resurrection and how it was like. In verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says this. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. The apostle was speaking of the decay that comes upon a corpse. Do you remember the woman went to the tomb of Jesus early on that Sunday morning And they carried with them perfume and ointments. Why? They wanted to anoint the body of a man, Jesus, who in death would begin to see corruption. His body goes into the grave and is sown in corruption. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, it wasn't just resuscitation. It wasn't just as as if he was before he died and went into the tomb. God raises him. And yes, there is similarity between the body that went in there and the one that came out. It was the same body. 
still recognized by the scars of the nails and the sword upon our Lord. But there was also a dramatic change in the body of our Lord from the time he went into the tomb and the time he went out. When he came out in resurrection, it wasn't like that of his former body of old. It wasn't that his former body was restored. No, his former body was glorified. The body of Jesus would never experience decay or corruption. It is the same for our bodies. When they come out of the grave one day, it will no longer be subject to the ravages of time and disease and the conditions around us. They will be different, incorruptible, Raised in glory and strength. What Paul is driving home is God raised Jesus by the power of the Spirit, not simply for his own vindication, but with us in mind as well. Jesus was the first to be raised in this manner, being brought forth in a glorified state. But as the first fruits, he will not be the last. And he made that possible for those who would trust in Christ. Everyone here who is in Christ Jesus will share in this resurrected glory. And I want to tell you, this is our hope. This is the very heart and center of the Christian faith. Every one of us will face death. And that is a certainty. But I ask you this morning, do you see death as the end for you? Or do you view it instead with confidence that this is not the end, but the beginning? That death, in fact, is a graduation to glory. See, if you're a believer, we don't have to fear death. Because today, this Easter Sunday, is a reminder that Jesus took death for us and he conquered it. It is powerless for us and our loved ones who are followers of Christ. And this should bring us much comfort. I close with this. The late Dr. Donald Barnhouse lost his wife when she was only in her 30s. She left him with three children under the age of 12. And Dr. Barnhouse, this man of God, this renowned theologian and pastor, he chose to bury his wife and to conduct the service himself. And he was driving to the memorial service with these three grieving, heartbroken children. And they were staring blankly out the window. And all of a sudden, a large truck passed them. And it cast a shadow over their car. Dr. Barnhouse, never losing his brilliant ability to illustrate, he paused and thought, what does a father tell his motherless children at a time like this. 
Then he looked at his 12-year-old daughter and said, Sweetheart, tell me, would you rather be run over by that truck or by its shadow? And startled by the question, she said, I don't know. Daddy, I, the shadow, I guess. He asked, why? She said, because the shadow can't hurt us. And he said, honey, I want you to know that Jesus was hit by the truck so mommy can go to the shadow. And it's going to be okay. That is our hope. Because of Jesus dying in our place and being raised for us. And I'm left with this is such a mystery to me. Why our Lord will love sinners like us in this way, who don't deserve any of this, who don't love Him in kind, who don't desire Him. But this is unmerited grace. This is grace unmeasured. This is a grace that we don't even know about. And we celebrate that this day and every day of our lives as we live for Christ who died and rose again so that we might have hope for the future glory to come that is ours in the risen Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this time to meditate, to remember, and to reflect on what your Son did for us. And this truth doesn't just enlighten us, it powerfully changes us, and it gives us hope for the life to come. And we've tasted it. We know a little bit about what this is like. And it makes us long more for you to be with you on that day. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you this morning. Would you help them to really consider these truths? Write eternity upon their hearts and give them eyes to see Christ for who he is. That he is the better Adam that they might trust in him, the risen Christ, for the life that he offers. Lord, we pray that you would give that assurance to each and every person here. By your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.